What do you think of when you think of the Old Testament prophets? Do they mostly talk about the prophecies of Jesus' coming? Or are they mostly a group of angry old men railing against evil and the coming final judgment? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. As you'll see, they are so much more than these two things and have challenges that apply to us today, as we'll learn in our lesson entitled, Prophetic Books, Little Understood, Incredibly Important. If people don't stop reading through the Bible when they get to Leviticus, they often bail out when they get to the prophets. They come across as a group of angry men making threats that don't always make sense. In our lesson today, I want to change all that and introduce you to one of the most fascinating sections of the Bible and one that has surprising relevance for us today. Let's look at where we are in going through the Bible chronologically. Then we'll talk about what these books are really about and how we'll spend the next few months studying them. Now here's our review and where we are in going through the Bible. Solomon's reign ends in sin and judgment. The kingdom splits in half. The southern kingdom's called Judah, and it's left to the descendants of David. Some of the kings are good, some of them are bad in God's eyes. The northern kingdom is called Israel, and it has a variety of kings, all from different families. Some of the families lasted a few generations, some only a few days, but all were ultimately bad and turned the people away from God. It is in this setting the group of books that we call the prophets are written. Now here is the content of the prophet's message, and it's a little bit different than what people usually think of, because often when people think of the prophets in the Old Testament, they think of them as primarily prophesying about the birth of Jesus. That focus then results in the list of prophecies fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. Now that can be very helpful and encouraging to our faith. However, that only makes up less than 2% of Old Testament prophecies. Or, if people don't think of that, they think of the prophets as talking about the end times, fire and brimstone prophecies, end times events that a lot of people try to correlate with contemporary ones, which really usually doesn't work out very well. But actually, less than 1% concerns events yet to come in a future time. The majority of the contents of the prophets, and this is really important to understand, concerns what will happen in the near future of the audience they were writing to. Now, it may be 100, 200 years away, but that's what they prophesied about. Not in almost all instances. It doesn't have anything to do primarily with end time stuff. And we'll Actually, there could be a little bit of an overlap, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. They were primarily addressing a contemporary audience and reminding them of God's expectations to them. Now, what exactly is a prophet, and what does it mean to prophesy? There's a lot of confusion on that. The basic definition of a prophet is one who speaks for God. To prophesy means to share that message, either in writing or in speaking. The prophecy is the resulting message. Now, one definition of prophecy that I think is quite good sums it up by saying that prophecy is more forth-telling than foretelling. It's 
telling the word of God right now what it means rather than foretelling the future. Though we often equate prophecy with talking about future events, again, that's only part of its meaning. More than that, in the Bible, the prophet's message consisted of explaining God's laws and reminding people of their responsibility to obey them, rebuking and calling people back to God. And in that, their message is really timeless because the people in the Old Testament messed up in the same ways that we do. Now, the task of the prophet, according to Stuart and Fee in the book that I've recommended numerous times already, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, they call the prophets covenant enforcement mediators. Now, they go back to, and we study this extensively early in the year, where Israel's law constituted a covenant, a promise, an agreement between God and his people. That's in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy. The law contained not only the regulations and statutes for them to keep, but it also contained punishments or curses that God will necessarily mete out if people do not do what they're supposed to do. God does not merely give Israel his law, but he enforces it. This is the message of the prophets. In summary, God requires his people to act in a certain way and promise blessings for obedience and discipline for disobedience. God was very clear about his requirements. Again, go back to the first five books of the Bible, review that if that might be helpful. And the people agreed to his requirements. That's really important to remember also. The prophets were sent to remind them of both what God said and what they had agreed to. Now, contemporary application. Throughout all of history, God expects a certain behavior from his people, from those who accepted his salvation. There are consequences to disobedience, and these are not only for rewards or punishment after we die. In some circles, there's a belief today that because Jesus died for our sins, past, present, and future, which he did, that we can now live how we want to live, do whatever we want to do, and belief in God is that his promise and people's belief in God is that his primary job is just to make us feel good, to smooth the way for us and get us parking spaces and, you know, do all kinds of good things that we want him to do. This is a huge error. The children of Israel, sadly, as we look back, they thought the same thing, that just because they were God's redeemed people from Egypt and just because they gave him token worship, that they could live however they wanted to live. These books show how wrong that idea is and how God would punish them for their disobedience. And more than that, they did not get to live the fulfilling destiny he had planned for them. It is following God's laws, following his ways is the best way to live. I've just been rereading C.S. Lewis' Mere Christianity, which if you haven't read it, please do read it. It's a little bit difficult to understand maybe, but it's so worth it. If you've read it in the past, reread it again. But he has this wonderful analogy in there. And he talks about how we were designed to live in God's way, just in the same way that he says a car is designed to run on petrol and it won't run on anything else. And if you try, it just gums up the works. And that's the way it is with living the way God wants us to. If we do that, 
things will work well. If we don't, it just gums up the works and we don't get very far in life. We learn from watching Israel and their shortcomings because God's expectations of his chosen people do not change. We are his chosen representatives, just like the children of Israel were. In 2 Peter 2, 9 in the Living Bible, it says, You have been chosen by God himself. You are priests of the king. You are holy and pure. You are God's very own. All this so that you may show to others how God called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were less than nothing, now you're God's own. Once you knew very little of God's kindness, now your very lives have been changed by it. Dear brothers, you're only visitors here. Since your real home is in heaven, I beg you to keep away from the evil pleasures of this world. They're not for you, for they fight against your very souls. As astounding as that is, it means us. We are representatives of our Lord. Now, the application to us is to pay attention as we begin this study. The message translation of 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12 is quite blunt in its application to us of the lessons of the Old Testament, where it says, these are all warning markers, danger, in our history books written down so that we don't repeat their mistakes. Our positions in the story are parallel. They at the beginning, we at the end, and we are just as capable as of messing it up as they were. Don't be so naive and self-confident. You're not exempt. You could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. Forget about self-confidence. It's useless. Cultivate God confidence. Now, how do these books help us please God? Well, God doesn't change. He expects a holy, set-apart behavior from the people called to represent him on earth. If his people do not act the way they're supposed to act, there will be discipline. As Hebrews 12 tells us that God will discipline us if we disobey, like a father who loves his children and wants them to grow up properly, which is why they went through the difficult things they did. But, and this is so important, what we also see from book after book is the incredible love and patience of God. Though we will see God's people do horrible things in rejecting him again and again to the point of burning their children alive as offering to pagan gods, God never stops loving his people, sending prophets to them, delaying judgment, caring for people even during and after judgment and captivity, and ultimately keeping them intact as a people to be the nation through whom the Messiah will come. With all these good reasons to study the prophets, we have a major challenge in studying them, in that they aren't in any kind of historical order or in the context of what actually happened to prompt their prophecies in our current Bibles. So you can't see what were the actions that prompted the prophet's message. Now, if the prophets were given to people to call them to account over certain things they did, and that's divorced from the history of what happened, what in the world are we supposed to do? 
We don't know also, too, what God did about it when they didn't obey. And, of course, they never did. But, again, if that's divorced from, if the historical part is separate from their preaching, it's very confusing. The usual divisions of the prophets, they're in five major books. Two of them, by the way, were written by Jeremiah. And they're called the major prophets. And they're called that because of their length, not because of their importance. But that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Lamentations. And then the 12 minor ones, again, because of length, not because they're less important. We have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, here's where it's confusing. They are placed behind the historical and poetic books in your Bible. And that makes no sense at all if you want them to actually make sense in what the people did and what God thought about it. Now, here's our plan. We are going to read them so that they do make sense. One of the most important things about reading the prophets is to put them into the historical context of when their message was given. And that means you have to actually, in your Bible, jump around quite a bit to read them in historical order. But you have the reading plan that I put together for you. And if you just follow that, it will make sense. It won't make, they won't make any sense at all if you don't do that. We will be doing that with the reading schedule and the chart that I have for you and this series of lessons will follow the reading schedule that you have. Now, just to show you the importance of history as you read the prophets, let's look for a few minutes at the story of Jonah. Many people know that Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days, but debates about that are all that most people seem to know about. Now we're going to do an entire lesson on Jonah next, and I'll be talking about the major reason that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the fish story was true, but we'll get to that next week. But for now, I want you to see it as a preview of all the prophets to understand the historical context of Jonah, and it'll help you see why it's so important that we know this. Well, Jonah started out as a popular, successful prophet, which we see in a totally different place than in the book that he actually, narr or someone, we're actually not even sure who did that, who wrote it, narrates about him. In 2 Kings 4.23, totally separate from the book of Jonah, it says, in the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel, who, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance, now listen to this, with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering, and there was no one to help them out. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. 
Jonah was a hero at home. He was recognized as the one who prophesied a great victory for his homeland. At the same time, Assyria, whose capital was Nineveh, was becoming a great power on the world stage. Not only a power, but they were a vicious and a cruel one. Jonah may have, inve- may have imagined that after God using him to prophesy about a great victory for his nation, he'd do that for this major enemy also. And I imagine he'd love to prophesy Assyria's defeat. I mean, that would have really been something. But instead, we know the story. God tells him to go and preach a message of salvation to them. And we know what happens then. Jonah runs the other way. Now, again, we'll go into that story in the lesson on Jonah. But the point for now is that you really need to know the historical context because that helps you understand why Jonah ran the other way. And it will explain his attitude even after the success of his preaching. To understand all the prophets, you need a similar approach. You need to understand the context in which they were preaching. Now, here's our plan for how we're going to do this. This lesson is an introduction to the prophets. We've talked about what they are, what they do, and how we can learn from them. Now we're going to proceed to study them. Now note that the lives of the prophets are often intertwined with the character of the king at that time. And the chart that I've created for you, and this is really important, go to the website, Bible805.com, and download it. (laughs) In fact, it's kind of interesting. This chart that I did up on the prophets has been the most downloaded thing on the website. I get anywhere from 20 to 50 or more uh, downloads a day just on this chart. But anyway, um, your reading schedule along with this chart um, will be very helpful to you. They can both be downloaded from Bible805.com, and this will give you the proper historical setting for the prophets. Now, I need to kind of warn you that... I won't, it's it's going to get a little bit tricky as we go through the schedule, because some of the prophets, for example, Isaiah and Jeremiah, go on for a really long time, and some of the shorter books, they'll kind of be grouped together, but basically, the whole history will be in order, and I'll keep you updated on it as we go through the lessons. Now, let's go back to our preliminary information on the audience of the prophets. Though they were primarily to Israel and Judah, they were often spoken, the prophecies were often spoken to the king directly and to the people, but they were also spoken to the nations. Now, sometimes for their own sake, as Jonah preached to Nineveh, he spoke specifically to them. And sometimes they were for specifically how they treated Israel. Obadiah was sent to preach to Edom in this way, and then later Nahum to Nineveh to preach judgment on them. Now, application. All of the nations are accountable. All of them know how they ought to treat each other and worship God. We see God isn't just, as one commentator said, just a tribal God of a certain localized people. No, he's the God of all the earth, and he expects all of the earth to act decently toward their fellow inhabitants of it. And they don't always do that, of course. Now, a little bit about the authority of the prophet. 
they emphasized again and again that their message was not their own. They spoke the very words of God. They often repeated the phrase, the word of the Lord. They came from a variety of backgrounds, from farmers to royalty, to some we really don't know anything about. They just kind of appear on the scene. As is often the case, though, some were reluctant, some were hesitant, but like Jeremiah, the message burned in them and they were compelled to speak. The attitude of the prophets in God. You'll only see this correctly when you read them again completely and not pulling out random passages because there's always a message of hope if repentance and there's also always the promise of unconditional restoration after judgment. In these books, we really see the heart of God. We see God's patience and his warnings repeated, sometimes for hundreds of years. His love, we see that again and again, especially in the book of Hosea, which is just just a wonderful book. We see his desire for restoration. Harsh judgment is never his first choice. He doesn't send prophets to beat up on people, but to restore them, to set them right so he can bless them. Now, a prof- the prophetic perspective of time is also really important to keep in mind because the prophetic books frequently deal with two and actually sometimes three timelines. As Gordon and Fee describe it, it should be noted, of course, that some of the prophecies of the near future were set against the background of the great eschatological or end times future, and sometimes they may seem to blend. It's like looking at two discs with a smaller one in front of a larger one and looking at them straight on. From the perspective of subsequent history, you sort of switch it around and see them from a side view and see how much distance is between them. And this illust- I have an illustration here on the page where you can see this. And um, please check out the video if you're listening to this on the podcast. But I have another illustration that even if you're not able to do that, that I trust you would be able to picture. And that's the prophetic view of world history. If you look at a set of mountain ranges from a straight on view, they can look very close together, but you shift the perspective slightly from an aerial view and you can see that there are large valleys between them. Since God, of course, sees all of time and the prophets speak for God, it can sometimes be a bit confusing to know what is supposed to happen when. Now, there's one really interesting example of three timelines from the same prophetic passage. And that is in Ezekiel 37, where you will read about the Valley of Dry Bones coming to life. And some of you, if you've, if you've never even read that chapter, you know the old spiritual uh, dem bones, dem bones, dem, you know, whatever. I'm not going to sing and, and uh, you know, absolutely uh, horrify you. But anyway, it's the idea of these bones coming together and then flesh is on them and, and they become, they fully come to life. Well, this is taken as a three-part prophecy. First of all, there was the near fulfillment 
is, and this was spoken, by the way, when Ezekiel was a captive in the land of Babylon. They were in Babylon. They were under judgment. But it was the near fulfillment was Israel did come together and return to the land after this prophecy, not, not many years after that. Then the second one, the second time frame that it was fulfilled is when Israel became a nation in 1949, totally a unique event in the history of the world. This nation that had been scattered and these people scattered and they come together and once again, they are the nation of Israel. And then the third prophetic fulfillment of it is at the end of time and the eternal resurrection of all people, some to glory and heaven and some to eternal punishment. You see this expansive view of time here and now, the future and forever. You see that especially in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is just all over the place. I've sometimes said that Isaiah is written really from God's viewpoint, and it can sort of make your head spin. But if you keep in mind God's view of time, and once again, I have another chart for you. I've showed it to you before. God's view of time, where he is simultaneously aware of and knows all that is past, present, and future. We live at just a point in time, but God sees it all. And so when he gives a message to his people to write, sometimes the different time frames from God's viewpoint can get a little confusing for us who read them. Some common, some contemporary commentators cast doubt and it's when I've really researched all of these is completely without cause on the dating of the prophet's writing because they have a, a what um, is known as an anti-supernatural bias. They don't want to believe that something such as God's viewpoint or prophecy can really exist. But internal biblical evidence, archaeology, and source criticism all show the validity of traditional dating. And we're going to discuss this issue more with individual books as we get to them. But um, the chart that I gave you has the most accurate biblical dates for the prophets. What is amazing about this and why the correct dates are so important is they show how God, the author, is outside of time and he can precisely predict future events. God is able not only in big overall events like the resurrection of the nation of Israel or whatever, but even down to the little tiniest things. One of the most extraordinary things is he predicts what Cyrus will do in allowing the people back to the land. And not only that a king will do this, he names him by name, Cyrus. And he does that in the book of Isaiah over 100 years before Cyrus was born. Now, a key lesson of the prophets, we see in them both the importance of what's called orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Gordon and Fee explain this, where they tell us that orthodoxy is correct belief and orthopraxy is correct living. Through the prophets, God called the people of ancient Israel and Judah to a balance of right belief and right living. This, of course, remains the very balance that the new covenant requires as well. What God wanted from Israel and Judah is, in a general sense, the same as he wants from us. The prophetic books can serve constantly as reminders to us of God's determination to enforce his covenant.
For those who obey the stipulations of the new covenant, loving God, loving one's neighbor, the final eternal result will be blessing, no matter what the troubles of this world. For those who disobey, the only result is an eternal curse, removal not just from the land, but from the presence of God. Just a few concluding comments. My prayer is that as we start on this adventure of going through the prophets in their historical settings, that we will have an experience like the prophet Isaiah, who when he saw God's majesty and was cleansed from his sin, he responded to the needs of his world. We may never speak with his power, but our world still needs people to live for and to serve our God. And to do that, may we respond to the Lord as he did when he prayed, Here am I, Lord. Send me. That's all for now. Please check out the additional resources at www.bible805.com. And please also check out some additional resources that I'm putting on the YouTube channel for Bible 805. That's going to be coming in the next few weeks, but I hope to have shorter and encouraging videos for you there in addition to the the full-length lessons. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.